This is Guns and Butter. what was key. As we were moving out, I was still able to see pillars that were still holding up the actual area. I mean, not very many. You know, there were some still knocked down. There were still wires. I, I didn't see any plane debris. I didn't see any airplane seats. I didn't see any metal. I didn't see any baggage. I wasn't covered in jet fuel. I know the people that we helped pulled out under the different floors, I didn't see them covered in any jet fuel. I, you know, I, I just didn't see it. And so at the time, after the fact, that's all I was thinking. That's what I didn't see. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dave Von Kleist, April Gallup, and Barbara Honiger. Today's show, What Didn't Hit the Pentagon. We begin with presentations by Dave Von Kleist and April Gallup from the March 2007 Justice and Freedom Conference what really happened on 9-11 in Irvine, California? Dave Von Kleist is producer of the video 9-11 in Plain Sight and host of the radio program The Power Hour. April Gallup is a September 11th survivor of the Pentagon attack. She was a Department of Defense employee and member of the military. Dave Von Kleist begins with a look at the corporate media coverage of the Pentagon. Now, how many folks remember last May, there was a big news story. They were going to come out with some new footage from the Pentagon. New footage was going to prove that Flight 77 hit, and they they were promoting it. How many people remember last May 17th? You remember that, big news. Well, I want to play for you. There we go. That's what I'm looking for. Here we go. Now, as they were preparing for this release, now this is real important, folks. Because we're going to get, this is, this is, you're going to see how this whole thing works. As they were preparing for the release of this new footage, Kira Phillips on CNN was interviewing Jamie McIntyre. Remember Jamie McIntyre? He's the senior Pentagon correspondent. And as they were preparing for the 1 o'clock Eastern time release of this new footage, the subject about the Pentagon and the controversies that surround it came up. And Kira Phillips asked Jamie McIntyre what he thought about some of these alternative theories about something other than a 757. If you want to crank up the audio on this one just a little bit, that might be a little bit low. Here, here's what he said. September 11th, having seen the plane wreckage and photographed it myself personally, I can tell you that that's nonsense. But okay, now I'll play that again. Now she asked him if there was if there was any possibility that something other than a 757 hit the Pentagon. And again, this is this past May 17th. Here's what he said. Having been there on September 11th, having seen the plane wreckage and photographed it myself personally, I can tell you that that's nonsense. Okay, he said he took pictures of it himself personally. He says, oh, these alternate theories are just nonsense. He also went on to say, listen carefully. I had a camera with me. I took uh, pictures of some of the wreckage, um, some of the parts of the fuselage, uh, a part of the cockpit, um, until they told us we had to move back away from the scene. Listen, I, listen to it again. He says, I had a camera, I took pictures of the what? I had a camera with me. I took uh, pictures of some of the wreckage, um, some of the parts of the fuselage. Of, fuselage, uh, of the right there. Um, until they told us we had to move back away from the scene. Now, this I, is last May 18th. When I heard him say this, thank you, God, I had my, my VCR tape rolling, I said, wait a second, he just said he took pictures 
of the fuselage, having been there myself, having, take, having taken pictures of the fuselage. So I went back to September 11th and got his video of him reporting live at the Pentagon. Listen to what he said live on September 11th. Now listen carefully. You know, it, it, it might have appeared that way, but from my close-up inspection, uh, there's no evidence of a plane having crashed anywhere near the Pentagon. The only site uh, is the actual uh, site of the building that's crashed in, and as I said, the only pieces left uh, that you can see are, are small enough that you could pick up in your hand. Uh, there are no large uh, tail sections, wing sections, uh, a fuselage, nothing like that anywhere around, which would indicate that the entire plane crashed into the side of the Pentagon. Uh, and All right, did you catch that? So, was Jamie McIntyre lying then, or is he lying now? Either way, he's lying. That's why he's senior Pentagon correspondent. And that leads us to our next presenter. Because she is only one person. And you know, she's part of a so-called minority. She's black. She's female. But the point is, is that this person, just like so many of us, understands how important it is to have an opinion and to voice it. And to understand that, no, you don't have to be a certified, licensed, and registered pyrotechnic expert to have a valid claim of fire, especially when it's the Pentagon that's on fire. And so our next guest, April Gallup, uh, is going to tell you a little bit of a, 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 a little bit of a story, a big story, a big story. Now, to this point, she's remained somewhat silent, and she'll probably explain to you why. But now, she is now stepping forward, and what she has to say, you need to hear. So, ladies and gentlemen, I bring to you Ms. April Gallup. So I feel like a lot of people are pretty much knowledgeable as it pertains to uh, September 11th. So I'm, I'm just going to give you some details about my eyewitness experience. So here I was, a new mom, just had my son uh, two and a half months prior. I was a happy new mom, and so at that time I was projecting to do different things. My goal at that time was get back in shape, get ready to go to officer school. That was my goal. My projection time was December 2001. So I didn't have much time, but I was going to do it. I was motivated. I, I knew I had to get that pay increase, and so that, that was the way I was going to do it. So I was happy, but I was still torn because I was a new mom, and you know how it is. You just have your kid. You want to be careful who your child is with and, and, and you know, things of that nature. So I wanted to check out the Pentagon daycare and make sure that you know, they really were going to do the things that they said they were going to do and that he really was going to be in good care uh, before I started. So, I returned to work September 11, 2001. I started my morning. <laughs> what a way to say, welcome back. <laughs> so, I start my morning with chai tea. That's my thing. I love chai tea. It's really good, especially mixed with milk. And so, I'm still torn, like, oh, God, here's my first day. And I thought my only worry was going to be starting back at work. So, I make my ride to the Pentagon. I get a phone call on my cell phone. Okay, April, we need you to go ahead and come on into the office, and then you can take Elijah to the daycare later. And I'm thinking, how am I going to get my son cleared, <laughs> you know, to, to get back there to do what you want me to do? So, of course, you know, subordinate. Well, can I make a recommendation? How about I take him to the daycare first and then come back um, and do what it is that you want me to do? But, again, I was a subordinate, so I have to do as I, I'm told to do. 
And I was told, no, how about you get them back here and you do what we want you to do, then you take them to the daycare. And I'm like, okay. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, he's not going to get cleared to get back there, so I'm going to get to get him to take him to the daycare anyway, so I'm just going to look like I'm following what I'm told to do. So I go to the security station. I'm like, well, they told me I have to bring my son back here. I already know he's not going to get cleared, but I want to make sure I come to you first so you can call them and tell them. So I'm thinking he's going to say, oh, yeah, you're right. We can't clear him to get back here on that particular day. No. Go ahead on back there. <laughs> we went through in, in the shortest amount of time ever in getting through to the Pentagon. So that automatically sent up some red flags to me because I was thinking, like, why in the world and how? You know, I'm thinking about those things, but I'm like, okay, I'm going to go ahead. So I move forward. I get to the desk. Um, my supervisor tells me I'm going to go to a meeting. When I get back, you and I are going to talk. And I'm like, okay, so you're going to a meeting. You have me come back here so you can go to a meeting. Okay, fine, no problem. So. I take my son's stroller, I put it beside the desk, I go to touch the computer button, you know, to turn on the computer, boom! That's exactly how it happened. There was no extra uh, additional things, it was just like that. I'd taken my son, put his stroller beside my desk, I went to turn on the computer, boom. And at that moment, our life was completely changed on that particular day. Now, here's what I feel like the details that you need to know. When I came to, of course, I was disoriented. I didn't know what had happened, what was going on. I was covered in debris from the, my, the, the back of my neck all the way down to my body. So the only thing that was out was my arms and my head. I shake my head, like, what is going on? What happened? Then all of a sudden, I can hear my son crying. He's crying louder and louder and louder. And I'm sure, moms, you know about this. When, when our, our children get in distress, all of a sudden we get that super strength, like we need to find out what's going on, you know. So he stopped crying, and that's what motivated me to low crawl or really pull myself out from under the debris, move all the debris, and get from under the debris because he had stopped crying. So my first thought was, oh, my God, I come back to work to lose my child. All types of things are going through my head. And so there was fear there. There was so many emotions going on at one time. And I wish, when I go back and think about it, I think about one of the things I was feeling was courage. I, I, I wasn't feeling courageous at that time. I wish I could say it because I don't know. Maybe I feel like you guys would really believe I was a hero. But I really can't say that. I really was very fearful. I was very afraid. And I was very concerned that I'd lost my child on my first day back at work. Regardless of the fact, I was able to get out, and there were a number of things that were going on at that time. There were people who were covered under debris. They were trapped in between the floors, saying, help me, save me, um, screaming. I mean, there were so many things going on at one particular time, and I was split. I had a duty and an obligation, because I was in the military. I had a duty and obligation to help save these people. And then here's my child, who now had stopped crying. I'm split, my child people, child people. So it was very hard. I was reaching under the debris to see if I could reach my child, to see if he was in the immediate area. I couldn't feel him. So then I thought, okay, I'm going to help save some of these people so they can help me find my kid. I, I, I couldn't find him. I tried. I was reaching under the debris. I couldn't. So I was able to help a couple of people, and I was saying to myself, help me find my son. Help me find my son. 
And of course, there was a lot of hysteria, so I don't really blame anybody there because they didn't stop. I mean, they wanted to get out, and I really don't blame them. I really don't. Things were still collapsing on the inside, and you really wasn't comprehending what was going on in your environment, so I, I, I didn't blame anybody there. We get to the point where things were collapsing, and my other coworkers, who, who we still stay in touch with today, we're like, we have to go now, we have to go now. But I was thinking I didn't have my son, and at that point I just wanted to leave with his body. So we get to a big just pile of debris, and I had one leg over the pile of debris, and they were holding my arm, it was like two people, holding the other long arm, telling me, come on, pulling me, saying, come on, I'm like, I, I just gotta try just one more time. And I reached down, just, Sheer chance, no science to it, no method to it. I just reached down and I grabbed my son's onesie. And I pulled the onesie up and I put him over my shoulder and then they pulled me by the other arm. And then as soon as they pulled me out over that place of debris, that area, more things had collapsed in that area. So it just all happened in time enough for us to really get out. And so I'm very, you know, very grateful. But there was no science to it. There was no method to it. There was no strategy, no plan. It just, it just simply happened. Now here's what was key. As we were moving out, I was still able to see pillars that were still holding up the actual area. I mean, not very many. You know, there were some still knocked down. There were still wires. I, I didn't see any plane debris. I didn't see any airplane seats. I didn't see any metal. I didn't see any baggage. I wasn't covered in jet fuel. I know the people that we helped pulled out under the different floors, I didn't see them covered in any jet fuel. I, you know, I, I just didn't see it. And so at the time, after the fact, that's all I was thinking. That's what I didn't see. But I know what I saw. And most of the debris that we, we, we were encompassed with or what we were going through was pertaining to office things. Concrete, books, computers, tables, things to that effect. So we get out on the lawn as we come out of the, the actual hall where they claim that's where the plane entered. Um, as I come out, I'm thinking all of a sudden someone had taken a hammer and literally beat me from my head all the way down to my feet, and then I collapsed. There was a gentleman who was helping people as they were coming out. He captured my son as I was going down to the ground. He got a gentleman to help hold Elijah while he moved me to another location on the lawn. Now, I really don't know how they determine rank structure because I had my civilian clothes on, but most of the higher you know, ranking people who had been affected were already transported out for triage and we were left on the ground. So the people who were surrounding us was just trying to stop cars to get us to the hospital. But while I was on the lawn, I can't say that I saw a silver piece of a plane part. I didn't see any of that. And that's the only thing that I really feel like I can attest to because those are things that I, I, I didn't see. Um, so, with that in mind, I would have never have believed that it was a plane, simply because I didn't see particular things. And based off the Pentagon renovation team, they did a mapping of where everybody was and what was the feet, uh, or where they were located, determine how far away they were from an impact. And it was just communicated to me, we were maybe 35 to 45 feet away from place of impact, more or less three or five feet. So I feel like, you know, if that's the case, surely there would have been something to support particular things. But again, I stick to, you know, my account and the things that I saw. I don't know what was more horrifying. I don't know if it was actually having the experience or the life 
you know, after 9-11. Of course, they wanted to um, train us or specifically communicate to us how they wanted us to express what is a story, what happened, and I couldn't do that because these were things that I know I did not see. So I could not support their official story because there were things that I did not see. And I can't say that they specifically communicated that I will not say this and that I will not say that, but I can say you know, we, they wanted to ensure that we communicated things as you know, they made the official story. I'm sure many of you are aware of what the official story is, and I just couldn't do that based off, you know, what I saw on the inside. Also, the other inappropriate thing was the fact that my two-and-a-half-month child was clear to go back there. That was the other, the other number two. They didn't want me to communicate that my son had been injured in that particular location. They felt like that was very inappropriate for me to share with the public. And again, I could not do that because then how would my son get his continuous care? How would he get his treatment? I mean, what was I going to tell the doctors? What was I going to say? How was I going to explain how he got hurt? He had a sunken, you know, when they're newborn babies, their head is already soft, but a large portion of his head had been sunken in. Plus, he was bleeding from the nose. Um, you know, there were just, just issues. And so it wasn't when I was asking those particular questions, I was given specific answers. It was the fact that they didn't make particular statements. What was I supposed to say? What was I supposed to tell the doctors? And if you didn't want to address that, then again, that was, again, a red flag. And that's a brief, you know, overall synopsis of my experience. And I didn't know if the crowd really had particular questions. And I want to let you know that I, I'm, I'm here to answer whatever questions you may have as it pertains to the inside of the Pentagon. You're listening to September 11th Pentagon Survivor, April Gallup. Today's show... What didn't hit the Pentagon? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. One of the things I know that you're probably concerned about. In reception and integration at the Pentagon, we're told that this is one of the safest buildings in all of the United States of America. It's part of your reception and integration. You're given a tour of the Pentagon. You're told particular things about the Pentagon. So I'm believing I'm working in one of the safest buildings in all of the United States of America. But on that particular day, there was no alarms, there was no alerts, and there was no warnings. Now, backstepping, while I worked at the Pentagon, they had drills so often that it became very annoying. I don't, I, you know, it's like a maze in there, and when you have to get a document to one place in the building to the other end of the building, and you have a very short period of time to do it, and then there's, uh, you know, <laughs> some type of training or some type of alert or some kind of practice drill, and you have to stop to participate in that drill, yes, it becomes very annoying. So here we have this particular day, and there was no alarms, no warning, and I just asked myself, what is the probability on that particular day, no alarms, no alerts, no nothing on that one particular day? Now, what did work was the doors inside the building that trapped other people in, and they couldn't get out. Those doors worked, and that's why some people were just pretty much burned to death. So we have to really look at these things and not question it as a sense of being unpatriotic, but that's, that's enough to raise concerns to. And then when you look at that building, there are certain things that's not supposed to even come within a certain radius of the Pentagon without some type of alert or some type of warning. But this object that they claimed to say was a plane was able to not only get in that radius, but also able to even touch the P 
Pentagon lawn and hit the building. That really blows my mind based off the money that goes into surveillance and that goes into security measurements and, and how, you know, this particular day, absolutely nothing was working. Because trust me, if I got a warning, I would have been willing to jump out of a, build, a window to get out of that building on that particular day to save my kid. So, it, it, you know, those things cause uh, a lot of questions and a lot of concerns for me. And it put me on this journey uh, to get to the truth, but not only that, to bring forth justice. And I think it's great, you know, what a lot of people are doing um, to help us to get to this, to this point, because it is very necessary. Um, and again, I will be here, so if, if you can't ask the questions now, um, I will be here available uh, if you have questions that you may want to ask me and pull me to the side. But um, I know that is a big issue. Was there any um, alerts or any warnings? And there, there, were, there were none, none whatsoever. And it's hard to even believe, considering the World Trade Center had already been attacked. And they have a room where they watch what's going on all around the world in different time zones and in different countries. And they know that the World Trade Center has been attacked. And then they don't even say, hey, everybody, we need to get up on arms or, or something, uh, something, do something. The probability of them not doing that, considering the, the level of uh, security they have and capabilities they have, what is the probability? So I had put out this task. I said, if someone could give me what is the probability of nothing working on one particular day, I would do one thing that they would ask me, as long as it wasn't unlawful, as long as it wasn't distasteful, and as long as it was something that was reasonable that we all could have come to agree with. And to this day, no one has been able to give me what, would, what is the probability of um, nothing actually working on that day. Um, again, I was selected, from the, the Pentagon selects people from all walks of the life. I was selected from the military. I was, I was in Heidelberg, Germany, and I was selected from the hospital. And so I had a very different perception of military, the country, everything. I had such a different perception until, you know, after that particular day. And I really wasn't one to question particular things until that particular day happened. I come from a military family. Our family and our generations in our family have served our country. We believe in serving God, country, and man. And I, and I still believe that, but I don't believe in, in particular things um, as far as misusing the military or, or perpetuating lies to, um, again, misuse the military. Um, but I still believe that we, we have a duty to do particular things. So it was very disappointing to have the experience and then to, to live the life after 9-11. And I hope my personal testimony or my personal experience will help answer many of the questions that some of you may have been having regarding the Pentagon. I know you're very familiar with the World Trade Center, so I hope my eyewitness account will help you in some kind of way. That's Ted Gunderson, the former head of FBI Los Angeles. Can you give us more details as to afterwards, who talked to you, who they were, what rank, what department, and the instructions that were given to you as what you could and could not say, rather than tell it like it is? Okay. That was done in two phases. When you're part of the military, even though I was selected for an assignment at the Department of Defense, I was still assigned to the military. So when I was transported to the hospital, I'm still government property. So the military has a right to take you from any civilian hospital to take you to a military hospital. So what happened was they sent one person from the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, and their goal was to come in and find all the military people to get proper accounting so they wouldn't be counted absent without leave. 
Well, when they came to the triage area where I was located, they, specific, they meaning Department of Army representative, and he was a captain sort, and I really don't know if I can say his name or what kind of implications that would be, but he wanted to know what I thought happened, and I'm like, what, what am I supposed to think? Well, I mean, I, you know, what was I supposed to think? I mean, I was on the inside. I didn't know what I was supposed to think. So there he began to explain to me, this is what happened. And so I said, well, I don't know that that's what happened on the outside because I wasn't on the outside. And he's like, what did you see? I told him what I saw, and then he asked, proceeded to ask me certain questions. Well, did I see certain things? And I said, no, I didn't see those things, and I'm not going to say that I saw those things. And then it was, I'm going to leave you with this. This is what it was. This is what you saw, and this is what you're going to say you're going to saw, and we'll be back to transport you to Walter Reed. Well, they never came back to transport me to Walter Reed. We were actually left there and were, was left in a triage room and was never transported to Walter Reed. Now, uh, once you get hurt, you go through what is called a medical evaluation board process. And so they had already, my second talk about what I should say or what I shouldn't say came from Department of Defense Public Affairs Office, where they said, well, we're going we're gonna to represent you, and here's what you're going to say, and this is why you're going to say what you're going to say. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that if it was actually things that I saw. And so I said, well, I can't say particular things because those are not things that I saw. So those are things that I could not say. Now, at the time when I was doing it, I was doing it as a sense of, you know, I didn't see that. I wasn't thinking about how this could all affect me later or what this could turn into. I wasn't thinking about it at that time. I was thinking about it in the sense of, well, why would I say that? Because I didn't see that. That's the way I was thinking of it in the time frame. And as I look back, now that they've kept much of my stuff and consistent appeals, I feel like there was a purpose, although they were not very blunt about specifically stating certain things. So those are the two times that I was approached, and, and the period of times that I was approached. It was the first time in the hospital, just, 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 and then the just. two weeks after I came back to start, after September 24th of 2001, when I had to start my medical evaluation board. What were you told to say? Pretty much what they've already made public about the official story, that it was a plane that hit the building. Well, now, I would tell you, about? after it happened, and I still had my watch when I took home, I know my watch stopped at 9.30, so it stopped at 9.30. My watch, now I don't know what that implies to the whole scheme of things, but I know the watch that I had on stopped at 9.30. And would you repeat that again? What time did your watch stop? The watch that I had on stopped at 9.30. Um, I wanted to mention that I will be showing some video clips from this footage. And it just so happens that one of the pieces of footage was taken of the debris and as a close-up of one of the clocks that fell off the wall. The time is 9.31. Now, the floor I was located, I was on the first floor, the E-ring, the fifth corridor, 1 Echo 517. So I don't even want to get into it, but I, you know, the, the way that they have the official path it's, a lot of it really doesn't add up based off, you know, where we were located. Okay. There's only two questions I'm going to ask. If you could tell us uh, what ring of Pentagon were you at and what floor were you on? Okay. I was on the first floor, the E-ring, fifth corridor. That's where I was located. And, again, Pentagon renovations team said it was maybe 35 to 45 feet away from place of impact, give or take three, you know, three or a couple more feet outside. Outside. Outside the E-ring. So that's where we were located. 
And the other question here on the sheet says what happened afterwards. Again, there was an official, uh, official story, and again, life afterwards really has not, it's been just as traumatizing as having the experience. And as I look back, I believe it had a lot to do with what, you know, I didn't say. I saved the email um, regarding a news reporter who shared with me that the Pentagon particularly told them not to interview me. And she didn't do the interview because she was concerned about more them not being able to get stories from the Pentagon. And where she failed was she actually sent that to me in an email. So to me, it, you're concerned about me talking or interviews, but you really weren't concerned about you know, our health and welfare or you know, us rebuilding our lives after such a horrific event. And so I say that email in the event there's any saying, no, we didn't say that, but she forwarded me the email. It was a Fox News reporter, and she was specifically advised not to do an interview with me and that they would give her a person to interview in my place. And they stated it was because they're concerned about, you know, what would happen during the interview, but yet they continue to keep our stuff in appeals and, you know, doing a lot of nonsense things after the fact. And it just didn't make sense for them to be concerned about a media interview as opposed to, you know, actually the health and welfare of people after a supposedly terrorist attack. I'm so sorry that the time is up. But I will be here uh, if you have um, any further questions. And I hope that helps and answer some questions many of you may have had. And I really appreciate being invited here. And thank you so much for your time. And thank you for having me here. You've been listening to Pentagon Survivor, April Gallup. April Gallup was employed as an administrative specialist with the U.S. Army at the Pentagon on September 11, 2001. She and her young son were injured in the attack of that day. She spoke at the March 2007 Justice and Freedom Conference, What Really Happened on 9-11 in Irvine, California. We continue with a presentation by professional military affairs journalist and former White House policy analyst Barbara Honiger. Barbara Honecker spoke at the 9-11 Accountability Strategies and Solutions Conference in Chandler, Arizona in February 2007. Today's show, What Didn't Hit the Pentagon. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So, uh, my background, I've been a, a researcher for decades, actually. Uh, I'm a professional military affairs journalist. I did work in the White House. Um, please forgive me, I worked in the Reagan White House. Um, but I was the first public resignation of conscience from the Reagan White House. I was a policy analyst in the West Wing, and I was also then moved on. I was also special assistant to the president. And then I moved on to the Department of Justice, where I was the director of a task force on the U.S. Code, uh, directly reporting to the Attorney General, and then I resigned the first public resignation of conscience from the Reagan administration over an entirely different matter than October Surprise. Many people believe I resigned over October Surprise. I didn't. I resigned over the secret plan of the Reagan Bush Senior Administration to assault the enforcement authority of all 56 civil rights statutes in the United States, and did so in the longest fact-based opinion piece ever published in the Washington Post to 10 days of international and national publicity. So I went out like a big candle. 
<laughs> so I've been, uh, I've been a whistleblower for a very long time. And I've, uh, the moment 9-11 happened, I watched uh, President George Bush, I put President Sick in parentheses, S-I-C, uh, because he wasn't elected, but uh, President Sick George Bush sitting in the classroom in Florida, uh, looking like uh, the proverbial deer in the headlights, doing absolutely nothing, on a split screen as I was watching, while innocent Americans were jumping in terror to their deaths out of the Twin Towers. And I committed myself to finding the truth about 9-11, just as I had about the October surprise and Iran-gate. And I'm now going to bring you some of my research and tell you where to find even more details. The first message I want to get across is that language matters. I'm a professional wordsmith. Language matters hugely. And I think it's time for those of us in the 9-11 truth movement to stop referring to the 9-11 terrorist attacks. They were not terrorist attacks. They were mass assassinations. All right, that's number one. Number two, I'm going to give you some of the evidence from my work on 9-11, and I want to refer you to the detailed paper uh, that I have. I've written a number of things on 9-11, but the most recent, which has been published in Jim Mars's book, a recent book on 9-11 called The Terror Conspiracy. It's a separate byline appendix in the back. It's called The Pentagon Attack Papers. I refer you there. And uh, you can find it in a number of places on the web, especially at a website called patriotsquestion911.com. You can go there, scroll down to my photograph on the left, go to the right text block to the right of the photograph, and click on the link for the Pentagon Attack Papers. It's also sometimes called Seven Hours in September or The Clocks That Broke the Lie. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what I called it there on that website, but one of those three titles, just click on that link and you will go to my, it's only about a 12-page paper. But when David Ray Griffin read this paper for the first time, he emailed me and he said, my God, this will transform the entire discussion of what happened on 9-11, in particular at the Pentagon. So now I'm going to move briefly to some of the highlights of that paper, but please do read it, because I went to a lot of effort to make a very concise, tight white paper, the kind of thing I used to write for the president in the White House. All right. Uh, the first bottom line of what I have learned from my investigation of 9-11 and the Pentagon attack is we're asking the wrong question when we ask, what hit the Pentagon? The proper question is, what was the violent event at the Pentagon? Not what hit the Pentagon. Now, many 9-11 truth researchers have of course, realized uh, the reality, there is, the, the hole is too small, the uh, debris is not on the lawn, the official story says that the plane skidded on the lawn before going into the ground floor. There are all kinds of reasons for knowing, not just believing, that Flight 77, a very large 757, did not strike the Pentagon. But most 9-11 researchers then back up and say, well, what did? But I believe that's the wrong question. The right question is, what caused the violent event at the Pentagon that you see the conflagration and the smoke, and what caused all those fires that were way away from the alleged impact point? Well, what I've learned is, is that the answer is almost certainly, I would put a 99.5% probability on it at this point, that there were explosions inside the Pentagon from some kind of bomb incendiary device. We have witnesses from inside the Pentagon for their names and all of the references and links to go to and see the details. Go to my paper, uh, the Pentagon Attack Papers. But the gist of it is, is that we have 
literally hundreds of witnesses from inside the Pentagon itself uh, who were physically there who have testified that they smelled cordite, which is an explosive, who have testified that from the inside of the building, the, um, the reinforced uh, window material uh, went out first, bulged out, which you would expect from a pressure wave from the inside of the building out, and then came back. Uh, we, have, we have multiple stopped clocks. That's one of the reasons the subtitle of my white paper is The Clocks That Broke the Lie. There are multiple stopped clocks that you can go to. The URLs, the links are at the back of the references in my paper. Multiple stopped clocks, Pentagon clocks, wall clocks, that are stopped between 9.31 and 9.32 and a half, which, by the way, happens to be at least five minutes before the official alleged impact time of Flight 77 or any other impactor at 9.37. The Pentagon's absolute earliest time for an impact today is 9.37. And by the way, they began back on 9.11 by starting to say that it was at 9.48. Then they came down to 9.47, 9.46, 9.45, do I hear 9.43, 9.41, it was almost like an auction. And finally, they came down to 9.37, and by God, they won't go a single minute below that to this day, even though all the clocks stopped between 9.31 and 9.32. For the rest of my talk, I'm going to refer to that time of the actual first violent event, or VE, at the Pentagon as 9.32 because you cut the difference amongst those clocks, all of which are set by somebody's wristwatch, which are a little bit different, so you'd expect them to be off by about a minute, which they are. So we have some kind of mass explosion, multiple locations inside the Pentagon and or immediately outside the wall of the Pentagon, probably both, going off at about 9.32. Again, I'm cutting the difference from now, and I'm just going to say 9.32. Uh, we have, believe it or not, I have the Attorney General of the United States. At the time, I have him on audio tape uh, stating that the Pentagon was attacked at 9.32. Again, the official story right now says 9.37. Uh, the Attorney General of the United States, when he was the White House Special Counsel, top attorney to President Sick, in parentheses, Bush, uh, stated that uh, the Pentagon was attacked at 9.32. We have uh, multiple TV and radio interviews by the Foreign Minister of Denmark, uh, who happened to look out a window in Washington where he was visiting that morning and uh, saw the fireball, looked at his watch, 9.32, immediately flew back to Denmark and went on radio and television all over Europe, saying that the that is, uh, looked at his watch and that the Pentagon fireball happened at 9.32. Uh, I have uh, interviewed witnesses uh, from Fort Monmouth who were temporary duty assigned to the Pentagon on before, during, and shortly after 9-11 who have testified that they were physically there when literally hundreds of people uh, raced past uh, their offices on the uh, right next to the cafeteria on the ground level of the south side, which is the way people were uh, taken out to the far side, uh, south side Pentagon parking lot, uh, all of them saying, oh my God, a bomb went off. It was bombs, it was bombs. It was hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, on the morning of 9-11, I have interviewed witnesses from inside the Pentagon who uh, came into the Pentagon Metro stop that morning about 7.15 to 7.30, which they normally did. And there were um, large numbers of bomb-sniffing dog teams on camp, the men in camouflage uniform, probably Pentagon police, we're not certain. But anyway, bomb-sniffing dogs teams on the morning of 9-11, uh, not before, not after, only on the morning of 9-11. So uh, obviously somebody pretty high up in the Pentagon was expecting uh, not a plane to hit the building, but 
bombs to go off in the building. You don't, you didn't have uh, plane attack dog sniffing teams. You had bomb sniffing dog teams. And so people inside the Pentagon were expecting the threat of a bomb attack that morning. And in fact, they had one big time. Okay. Uh, Now, what if I were to tell you uh, that, as I said earlier, what if we are asking the wrong question, what hit the Pentagon? Now, I would like to say that just because we can prove That when I say bombs, that's a shorthand for explosives. I'm just calling it bombs. That bombs went off inside the Pentagon on the morning of 9-11 at 9.32 and probably some shortly after. That does not rule out the possibility that there was a subsequent, shortly thereafter, impact event of something. I personally don't think that there was. I think the whole story is bombs and a flyover of a plane that flew through the smoke. And people thought that it was an impact event. And that this was intentionally set up in order to be uh, literally a a smoke and mirrors psyops to mislead uh, witnesses intentionally ahead of time. And that the explosion at the Pentagon, which was bombs, explosives, was timed to go off just as that plane uh, approached the building and then came up at the last minute and, and overflew the building, which the citizens' investigation team has now proven by four new eyewitnesses, and that's their magnificent, brand-new videotape that you can see by going to pentacon, C-O-N.com, and I recommend that all of you do that. Um, it's not pentacon.com, it's the pentacon.com. Very important difference because I think you might get some official website if you just go to pentacon.com. All right. So just as I've said these what if questions, what if it's the wrong question that some, what hit the Pentagon? What if that's the wrong question? What if, what if a bomb or bombs, the big violent event at 932, approximately 932, was pre-planned to go off just as a pre-planned plane approached it? In other words, what if bombs was really inside the building bombs, internal bombs was really what happened on 9-11 at the Pentagon, and the plane was just the cover story? Well, folks, let's take the clock back just a few minutes to the World Trade Center. We now know from this magnificent witness, Willie Rodriguez, uh, that there were deep basement bombs at the World Trade Center. We all know that there were pre-placed explosives in a symmetrical way throughout the building. The World Trade Centers 1, 2, and 7, not hit by any plane, were brought down by controlled demolition charges, which means pre-placed explosives. And therefore, we know that the planes hitting the building and the resultant fires themselves at the World Trade Center was the pre-planned cover story. And what I've just proven to you is it's the identical modus operandi at the Pentagon as well as at the World Trade Center. Bombs inside the building, pre-placed bombs inside the building, time to go off just before or as the plane hits the building or goes, in the case of the Pentagon, towards it goes through that fireball and smoke and disappears out the other side, which is now proven by two of the witnesses of the citizens' investigation team at the Pentagon, C-O-N.com. You're listening to senior military affairs journalist and former White House policy analyst Barbara Honiger. Today's show, What Didn't Hit the Pentagon. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. All right. Next, extremely important point. Um, the modus operandi was identical at both the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Bombs inside the building, timed with the plane approach. That in in and of itself alone is proof of a conspiracy and that Al-Qaeda could not possibly have done it, that it was an inside job. 
So what is this? What we have shown here is that 9-11 is first and foremost a psychological operation. It is a psyops. If you have a psy if you have a covert operation, an inside job, a black op, you always have a legend pre-established to go with it. You never do the covert op. You never do the black op without the legend already in place. And all of the people and the fake witnesses and the planted evidence that puts across the legend, it's called in the intelligence world, or the PSYOP. And indeed, that is what happened on 9-11. And who had to be the master PSYOP magician? It had to have included Philip Zelico because the master who put out the ultimate quote, official story, the official government conspiracy theory of 9-11 is indeed the author of what really should be called the Keene-slash-Hamilton-slash-Zellico, the Keene-Hamilton-Zellico report. And who is Philip Zellico? If you look at his own biography, you will find that he is a historian, a political historian, who specializes in the creation and maintenance of public myths of public mythologies, and that he defines public mythologies precisely as beliefs that have no proof, but that people believe anyway. And that is precisely what he is a master of creating. So, Philip Zelico had to, in my professional opinion, have been part of the conspiratorial core, conspiratorial team that plotted and planned the real attacks, and is therefore one of the real terrorists of 9-11. All right, next. An amazing fact. We just mentioned the Keene Hamilton Zellico 9-11 Commission. Keene and Hamilton, of course, we all know that it's a pack of lies. Anyone who has read, uh, has read David Ray Griffin's The 9-11 Commission Report, Emissions and Distortions, uh, knows that he calls the Keene Hamilton Zellico Report a 571-page lie, uh, which it is. What most people don't know is, and you learn this, believe it or not, in Keenan Hamilton's own recent book called Without Precedent. Without Precedent is the title of their book, in which it blew my mind, in which I learned that in the Keen Hamilton Zellico staff, they had over 100 staff members for the official taxpayer-supported investigation to the tune of $14 million or whatever it was of your money, that there were, guess how many staffers devoted to the investigation and report writing of the day of, which means the actual attacks themselves. Well, you learn in their book that there was one. One. There were over 100 staff members. There was one individual who was specifically assigned to investigate and write up the report on the day of, is what they called it. And as you remember... The very last Keene Hamilton Zellico Commission was reserved for talking about, and they wish they, they would have preferred not to have done it at all, the day of. In fact, it was called that. All right. Now, it's another amazing fact. And that amazing fact uh, from a really magnificent paper that was just published called These Are the Facts of September 11th, 2001 by John Doremi. Uh, who has the website crimesofthestate.blogspot.com. Uh, he has a list of 
something like 70 key facts, exactly 70 key facts of 9-11. They're mind-boggling. It's a mind-boggling list. I refer you to it. Number 26, the FBI Inspector General's own report attributes the inaction and inattention that, quote, caused, unquote, uh, the attacks of 9-11 to succeed to a lack of resources committed to anti-terrorist activities before 9-11. For instance, there was only, remember, one person devoted to the day of in the Keene Hamilton Zellico Commission. There was only one research analyst assigned to the FBI's bin Laden unit before 9-11 in the year 2001, and she was transferred out in July 2001. In other words, exactly when George Tenet, the head of the FBI's hair was allegedly on fire, and he was trying to wake up everybody throughout the Bush administration to the threat of a coming terrorist attack by bin Laden, he believed it would be or claimed it would be uh, by bin Laden, uh, the one person uh, who was the FBI's person on uh, the bin Laden unit uh, was moved out of that unit in 2001. And I believe that that individual was Linda Franklin. I'm following this up. Do you remember who Linda Franklin was? Linda Franklin was a FBI terrorist, terrorism expert. That's all the New York Times told you when she was shot in the head by the D.C. Maryland sniper. She, was, she and her husband were putting what they had just bought from a Home Depot into their car in the Washington, D.C. area, and she was shot through the head. I believe that is Linda Franklin, and I am going to find out, and I will let you know. And I also believe she's probably related to Larry Franklin. Uh, Larry Franklin was the... DIA, that's the Defense Intelligence Agency's Iran expert, who was special duty assigned to Fife's policy shop in the Pentagon, the number three man in the Pentagon, who was responsible for the WMD lies that got us into this illegal Iraq war. And so he, this, this man, a man by the name of Larry Franklin, who was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force Reserves, and therefore in perfect position to know about the Air Force war games coming up on, that happened on 9-11. Uh, I'm looking to find out, and if anyone can help me, that that Larry Franklin is related in some way to the Linda Franklin, who was the only bin Laden investigator for the FBI on the bin Laden unit that was taken out of that unit in July 2001, just when George Tenet, head of the CIA's hair, was on fire with all the uh, warnings about a coming terrorist attack. All right. Many of you may have heard of a very important witness, a Pentagon witness named April Gallup. April Gallup survived uh, being inside the Army administrative slash financial slash audit area, the, the Army administrative area uh, in the Pentagon, which had the most damage on 9-11 and the most deaths and casualties and wounds and maiming on 9-11. She survived that. Uh, she walks with a cane today. Her infant son was with her, and he also survived. She was in that part of the building, exactly the hole where the Flight 77 allegedly went in. She was physically there. She found her son. She went out the hole, out into the Pentagon lawn, and looked very carefully and found absolutely no evidence of any plane whatsoever and strong evidence of a bomb or explosives, and she was uh, schooled in, in uh, explosives. Um, I'm going to end now by just reminding you that we have already won. We have already won the battle for the hearts and minds of the American people. 
84% recent nationwide poll say that they know or believe that the official story is either a lie or the whole story has not been told. And 62%, just this last September 8th to 11th of 2006, have said that they believe or know that the administration, that, the, that it was an inside job, that the federal government was in some way involved with the events of 9-11, not just their cover-up, not just allowing them to happen, but involved in the events. So I want you to know that we're already the victors. We have to figure out a way to make it safe for the silent majority of the American people who already know the truth because of what we've already done to feel safe to come public. Thank you very much. I believe I'm over time a little bit, um, but I would like to take a few questions. Yeah, that's a very good question. The question is, why do I keep using the word Al-Qaeda? Um, a fundamental question of 9-11 is, is, do we have a real enemy or not? It's a question beyond my, uh, my personal expertise to answer whether, whether Islamists, Islamic fascists are a genuine enemy or whether they are simply manufactured by our intelligence community out of whole cloth. But I will tell you this, now that we've thrown the rock into the beehive of Iraq, it's now real, even though it wasn't before 9-11, and that's the problem. Yeah, let me ask, answer them one at a time. The question was, do we know the name of the one individual that was not named but mentioned as one person who was responsible for the day of? That was in my opinion, uh, that would need to be pulled out probably by subpoena power, but I believe that's Dietrich Snell. And Dietrich Snell was involved with, he, he, he was the guy who covered up the World Trade Center attack in 1993. Next question. No, no, I didn't mean to say that they had testified. The question is, well, what, what the situation is, is that I have interviewed uh, people who work for the Army, who were physically there, had walked outside of their office door, which was close to the cafeteria, on the south side, close to the exit. The cafeteria is close to the exit. And when the bombs went off in the Pentagon, all the people from the west side, they had to get out, and they were funneled from the west side out the south side entrance out to the far south side parking lot. And those, he told me, more than one person, there were three, told me on tape that all of those people who funneled by, they just dozens, there were hundreds of them, uh, they were panicked. They just wanted to get out of the building, get away from the destruction, the devastation, save their lives. But just dozens of them said, it was a bomb, it was bombs. They were, people were saying, what happened? It was a bomb, a bomb went off. Now, you know, skeptics are going to say, well, they didn't see the plane come in, and so they thought it was a bomb, it was really a plane that impacted the building. We know that isn't the case because of April Gallup was physically in the hole. You've been listening to professional military affairs journalist and former White House policy analyst Barbara Honecker. Barbara Honecker's article, The Pentagon Attack Papers, is posted at PatriotsQuestion911.com. That's PatriotsQuestion, the numbers 911.com. Scroll down to her listing to locate the article. Dave von Kleist, producer of 9-11 in Plain Sight and host of the Power Hour radio show, can be contacted through his website at www. 
www.thepowerhour.com. The website for the Justice and Freedom Conference, What Really Happened on 9-11, is www.freedomlawschool.com. That's freedomlawschool.com. Today's show has been What Didn't Hit the Pentagon. Thank you to Payman Motaheda and Ted St. Rain for providing audio for today's program. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of the show, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at gunsandbutter.net. Or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall. Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying Look what decides yourself For peace